welcome to the Five Oceans Podcast with hosts Mark Campbell and Chris Gervais from Five Oceans Advisors, a fee-only financial advisory firm serving Gen X and Gen Y founders and C-suite entrepreneurs. Mark and Chris share the core beliefs that traditional wealth management is now a commodity and that clients deserve more from their financial advisors. As founders and entrepreneurs themselves, Mark and Chris have developed a new model for wealth management called Life Strategy, a proprietary system designed to teach clients how to connect the dots between money and happiness, with the ultimate goal of empowering them to be whom they want to be in the world. Now, onto the show. Hello, I'm uh, Mark Campbell, and along with my co-host and business partner, Chris Gearbase, welcome to the Five Oceans podcast. Today is another episode of our podcast mini-series called the Exit Planning Toolkit, which is meant to provide valuable insights to founders and C-suite entrepreneurs who are on their way towards a meaningful exit from their business. I'm very excited for today's guest, Lewis Hamill who is a partner at the accounting firm HWLLP Advisors. A little bit about uh, Lewis. Uh, Lewis understands the key aspects of building successful long-term client relationships, personal attention, trust, integrity, responsiveness, and the importance of proactive thinking. Beyond this foundation, Lewis has the innate ability to connect with people by understanding their needs asking the right questions and seeing the big picture. Chris and I have both experienced that with him directly. Uh, he's a master at that. This approach is why he is more than just a CPA. Instead, he's a true advisor going beyond the numbers by providing valuable advice and practical solutions. Lewis specializes in advisory services for high net worth individuals, closely held businesses, from startup enterprises to large privately owned firms and areas of expertise include consulting for tax issues, business formation, and succession and estate planning. And uh, I will also add that uh, I've personally known Lewis for a long time. He's he's my accountant. He's Chris's accountant, and he is the accountant for Five Oceans Advisors. So we have a pretty good sense of uh, the marketplace out there. And and for us, Lewis has really stood out for a lot of those mentions or a lot of those reasons that I already mentioned. So with that, Lewis, welcome to the Five Oceans podcast. Mark, Chris, thanks very much. I've been looking forward to this uh, discussion and uh, certainly have enjoyed the relationship and friendship with both of you over the years. So um, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You got it. Absolutely. Thanks, Lewis, for for joining us. And um, let's kick us off with a conversation about tax here. This is the Exit Planning uh, Toolkit podcast. And one of the themes that we talk about in every episode is the importance of having a team of advisors in place. And of course, the CPA is a is a, an integral part of that team. And I want to start out by asking the question, um, what is one of the biggest things you see from a tax perspective that that blows up a transaction, big risk that could blow up a transaction as a business owner goes to sell their business. And I, I know from speaking with you in the past, Lewis, that state and local tax compliance issues is one of those major, um, major points that can potentially blow up a deal. So I wanted you to, if you don't mind, go into what exactly that means, um, specifically what risks there are and what founders and C-suite entrepreneurs really need to be staying on top of so that this doesn't end up um, screwing up their transaction? 
I think broadly speaking, when you're looking at a, an exit transaction, you, you obviously want this to go as smoothly and as quickly, as painlessly as possible. And that covers a range of different areas um, outside of the tax compliance function. But one area that is typically or can be problematic in these scenarios is tax compliance in general. And so we think about that from a federal, a state, and a local level. Federal level is oftentimes not as much of a problem. You know, companies are filing federal income tax returns and are, you know, handling all the compliance issues with that. An often overlooked area is at the state and local uh, level. So we call that SALT, state and local tax um, area. So here, what we're thinking about is an entity that is filing in one or more states and maybe hasn't thought about additional states where they have uh, income tax filing requirements. And that's generally through something we call Nexus, which is a doing business standard. And so having employees in a state, having physical presence, a number of different things can cause you to have state and local filing requirements. And oftentimes these are overlooked because maybe the preparer hasn't asked the question, the founder or the, the team haven't thought about these issues that, gee, I have an employee in Georgia, as an example, and that creates a Georgia filing requirement for me from an income tax perspective. That same concept or logic applies also to sales tax, uh, payroll tax reporting, property tax, as the case may be. These are all issues that a buyer, in terms of a due diligence process that they're going to conduct when they're looking at your company, are going to ask these questions. You're going to get a, a checkbox or a, a checklist, I should say, of tax returns and what jurisdictions you filed in. And if they find issues where you haven't filed in, say, a state or a locality for X number of years, that's going to cause headaches for you. And that can cause a couple of different things. It can certainly in the extreme, it can uh, blow up the transaction and, and you might end up not being able to sell your company. More commonly, it might compromise your enterprise value or it might cause additional clauses or indemnifications, which can be pretty painful items to consider as part of your sale agreement. So what we always advise our clients uh, from a compliance standpoint is let's be thorough and go through the list and make sure that you have all of your filing requirements in line and you're filing in all the places that you're supposed to be filing and all the types of returns that you're supposed to file. That can be somewhat painful when we initially go through that, but it pays big dividends down the road because when you're able to present a clean sort of box, as we call it, to the buyer to say, we're in compliance and we've done everything the right way. That's going to give peace of mind to the buyer. It's going to make the process go a lot more smoothly. So we again, we encourage all of our corporate entities, our founders to really uh, invest the time and make sure that, that all of these areas are being um, covered appropriately. Now, is it safe to say that ideally they should be addressing SALT compliance issues prior to signing uh, LOI? Absolutely. And I think this will be a theme of our, our discussion today. Uh, they need to be really proactive on these issues. So ideally, these are issues that have been um, addressed from day one. And so you have a clean filing and compliance history. So if you're even a founder and you may not even be thinking about selling your company at this point, it may be something you're thinking about three, five, seven years down the road. You need to be doing this now to make sure that you've established the clean filing history. And again, you're going to bring peace of mind and, and have a transaction go a lot more smoothly down the road. And so you need to be thinking about these things now. I guess effectively, um, well, one of the theme, another theme, there are several themes that have uh, been through lines on the exit planning toolkit 
uh, podcast, but one of them is that exit planning strategy is just good business strategy. And this sounds like another one of those examples. If you're if you're not doing uh, state and local tax compliance, you're effectively kind of racking up a a liability that will one day need to be paid. And and I can imagine does it go something like this? You get into you sign an LOI, you get into due diligence. Buyers are pretty good at sniffing out um, tax filings and tax issues that haven't been addressed, and then now you're getting into negotiations, and you're really as the seller in a in a poorly leveraged position if you haven't been proactive with your state and local tax compliance. Yes, that's exactly right. So the buyer is going to have typically an accounting firm, but obviously a law firm involved, and they're they're going to be paid to find issues. And so they're mm-hmm. going to do the deep dive on your company and they're looking for problems. So you're going to get a questionnaire that says, tell me where all your employees are, what locations, tell me what your sales are in each state. And certainly tell me where you have physical presence in a state via an office or, or a remote worker, as the case may be in the, in the COVID and post-COVID times that, that we're in. Sure. So you're going to fill out that checklist and they're just going to go through that and say, okay, you have an employee in Georgia to use the previous example, show us your Georgia tax returns. And if you don't have those, you've got a problem. Um, so so that's, that's how it goes. And I would also setting aside the exit uh, planning aspect of this, eventually you're going to get a letter from Georgia, even if you never sell your company. And that's mm-hmm. going to open up that Pandora's box of, of a lot of problems. So you just want to be out in front of these things. And I think you, you have the exact right point, which is all of this is designed to drive enterprise value and, and equity value. You want to have, obviously, the greatest amount of sale value that you can. And so that's certainly how you operate the business and grow the business, legal operations. But the tax side of this is a, is a contributor to that as well. So you just want to have all of these things lined up so you maximize your value. Makes sense. Well, um, thanks for enlightening us on state and local tax compliance issues. I, I do want to also talk about, um, I kind of want to move on to the next topic here, which is something that I think is arguably one of the biggest benefits in in the uh, in the US tax code which is qualified small business stock. We're going to talk about QSBS in a couple of the exit planning uh, toolkit episodes here, but can you give us a, a lay of the a lay of the land just basic um, education about what QSBS is, um, how you can qualify for it and maybe even some more detailed or specific issues you should be aware of. Um, as you lead up to getting closer and closer to selling your business? Yeah, I think you know, QSBS in general, so qualified small business stock, use QSBS for shorthand, is just one of the most overlooked, I think, sections and benefits in the tax code. There just aren't a lot of advisors and CPAs that practice in this area and specialize in working with founders. And so uh, it, it's, as I said, an often overlooked um, section in the code. So Qualified uh, small business stock, I'll give you a brief overview, and I'll just put the proviso as we'll probably do a couple of times. There's a lot of detail and a lot of intricacy to this uh, particular code section. And so you're going to want to talk to your advisors and and have some some thorough conversations about all of the details as well as planning opportunities with this section. But in general, uh, qualified small business stock is stock originally issued from a domestic, i.e. U.S.-based C corporation. And so typically stock that's going to be issued or uh, to the founders at the beginning of the company, when the company is first set up. 
Uh, so a domestic U.S. Uh, C corporation, it's stock that is held for at least five years. We'll talk about a potential uh, rollover option a little bit later on um, with respect to that holding period. Um, and it's a it's stock that's in a qualified small business. So what do we mean by qualified small business? Well, generally, we're talking about a company that, again, U.S.-based at the time of issuance of the stock, the company has uh, no greater than $50 million of assets. Now, that $50 million is not a value-based quanta calculation, I should say. The $50 million is essentially what we would call your tax basis in the corporate assets. So here we're thinking about cash and we're thinking about the tax basis of any other assets you have, generally hard assets. So for instance, if I if I bought property, plant, and equipment that's in my business, and I paid $10 million for that. That's going to be the value for the purposes of the $50 million test. If I have an intangible asset, it's going to be the hard dollars that I've invested into that asset. So we're not talking about things like goodwill or other things that may drive the enterprise value well north of that number. But at the time of issuance, you have to meet that $50 million hard hard dollar number, as I call it. Can I ask a question on that? I want to drilling a little bit. Are you saying that if my company might actually be worth or can be worth $60 million, but if my tax basis is only 40 million, that I could still qualify for a QSBS? That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So the way I would think about that, you know, you look at a lot of times where companies are sold. And if you just looked at a balance sheet, you just looked at hard numbers on that balance sheet, that might be a relatively low number. But really what they're selling is a an intangible asset to the buyer. Yeah. That could be goodwill. That could be a customer list, customer uh, list. some sort of IP. Those strategic sort of, value. Otherwise, strategic yeah. value that you are not going to see on a balance sheet. So that's not going to fall into this $50 million test. Yeah. So good to know. Um, yeah. So, so that's, that's one aspect. Um, the other aspect or one of the other aspects is at least 80% of that company's assets have to be used in a qualified trader business. And we'll talk about what a qualified trader business is. In a minute. So you don't want to have idle assets from like an investment perspective sitting around. You have to be operating and conducting a trader business. That's the that's the government's goal um, with this with this area. And then we think about what a qualified trader business is. Now, when you go look at the the, the code section, it really defines this by exclusion. It doesn't say here are the qualified businesses. It really says here's what's what aren't qualified businesses. And generally what we're talking about here are in terms of businesses that are not qualified, we're talking about financial uh, companies, brokers, um, also companies that are renting real estate, health, law, accounting. So poor HW wouldn't wouldn't qualify um, for that. Again, brokerage services and kind of the general proviso is any trade or business where it's based on the reputation of the employees as opposed to doing a you know, a hard asset or inventory. So, but again, you're going to want to think about if you're going to go down this road of, of implementing or, or utilizing the QSBS, you're going to want to have a conversation with your advisor to make sure that you fall within the definitions of this code section. But in general, it's the brokerage type of thing. And, and just to, and, and again, just to be clear, this, this isn't at the point of formation. This is prior to the point where you'd no longer qualify. So a, a transition to QSBS can be made. That's, right. That's okay. correct. Yeah, I was gonna. And, 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 
Yeah, just one quick thing, and this will, and again, we could probably go all day on QSBS alone, and we're not going to do that for the sanity of our, ourselves or our listeners. But there are just a multitude of planning opportunities in terms of restructuring and reorganizing an entity, so you can you can move, a, say, a QSBS eligible business into a separate entity and have that be the QSBS vehicle. So a lot of planning opportunities. Again, you're going to want to be thinking about this with your advisors well in advance of any exit. So I have a, um, I, I've had a client in the past who, um, you know, mentioned to me that they had a plan to sell their business in six or seven years and they were an S corporation and, uh, to just double down on, on Mark's point, I think it's important for our listeners to know that you can actually convert, do a conversion to a C corporation and then start the five-year clock ticking at that upon, upon conversion. But you didn't miss out necessarily on QSBS if you're not currently a C corporation or if you didn't start out originally as a C corporation. Um, so I just want to make that point. And then somewhat related, and if you don't mind, Lewis, talking about in the scenario that either I started the business only three or four years ago, or maybe I converted to a C corporation and I'm I'm still one or two years away from uh, from from hitting that five-year mark to fully qualify as QSBS, um, can you tell us about the 1045 rollover and how I still might be able to take advantage of QSBS even if I haven't hit that five-year mark yet? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, a within an overlooked code section, which is section 1202 and QSBS. The section 1045 is also an overlooked, uh, often overlooked provision, and it requires advanced planning. And we'll we'll get into why that is. Um, so when we think about QSBS, and let's say I meet all of these definitions, um, all of the provisions, and I certainly have eligible qualified small business stock that I hold, and I started my company two years ago. So I have a two-year holding period on my stock, and I have a buyer um, that's very interested. And that buyer is willing to offer me a lot of money for my company. Clearly, you're not going to say to that buyer, come back in three years when I've met my five-year holding period. You're, that's just not going to be a good decision from an overall financial perspective. And so we see this a lot where the company sells and they're nowhere near that five-year holding period. So in that scenario, you have an option for the deferral of the gain. And that's the section 1045 rollover. So the 1045 tells us that if I have qualified small business stock in every way, except I don't meet the five-year holding period. Now I have to have held onto the stock or had the stock for at least six months. So I'm in that post six months, less than five-year horizon. Um, I have the opportunity to defer gain on the transaction by reinvesting my capital gain proceeds or a portion of my capital gain proceeds in another qualified small business. So I sell my company for $5 million. That is all QSBS with the exception of the five-year holding period. If I were to reinvest that entire 5 million into another qualified small business, then I defer the game. And my holding period, all of my characteristics of my QSBS tax on to the replacement company that I've invested into. So. Again, a lot of planning and a lot of detail to think about with the rollover on a high level. That's what it, that's what happens. And so yeah. now thinking about the replacement or the new QSBS entity that I reinvest my proceeds into, that can be an existing entity. So I might have a colleague, a friend, or someone I know who's got 
uh, a QSBS qualified or QSB, I should say, qualified small business. Assuming they meet the definitions, I can reinvest. I can also start my own new QSB. And there's a lot of interesting um, options there in terms of starting up the business and, and what types of activities you can engage in and still qualify for the small business um, exemption. So the now I mentioned the need to be thinking about this in advance. Here's the reason why that needs to happen. The rules of 1045 tell us that I have... In terms, in terms of being able to utilize that section, I have to reinvest my sale proceeds within 60 days of my transaction concluding. Now, if you think about that, that is not a long time. That's a very nope. short period of time when you are thinking about either making a decision to invest in another qualified small business, which will have the inherent risks of any business of that type, or starting up your own entity and getting all of my I's dotted and T's crossed in that process. And so you don't really want to be thinking about that the day after a transaction. You want to be thinking about that as, as far in advance as you can. So very sure. typically, if you have a buyer interested, maybe you have a letter of intent or something, that's a good time to at least have this on, on the table for you to be thinking about, do I want to take advantage of this, of this option? So that's where the advanced planning comes in. That's... Uh super helpful. I, you know, Chris and I talk about this a lot. Um, but this whole conversation, obviously we can get very granular and very detailed on QSBS. Um, but what it represents as we found through all of these exit planning episodes is the reality that even though the founder or, you know, early entrepreneur is so busy with so many things, uh, based just to keep their business going or, you know, uh, a, a multitude of things that are pulling their attention today, building this expert team and understanding really a handful of incredibly compelling opportunities on the advanced planning front is critical. There's so much value associated with that. And so again, to all the, the folks listening, I just want you to, for a second, step outside of the day-to-day -day and, 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 and take in that message that building that team, thinking methodically about how do we position ourselves for the best outcomes over the long term, separately from today's problems with the business, incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah, I think Such that's right. I, yeah, I'll just maybe add one thing to piggyback on that. So, so in our practice, we talk to our clients about buses and dogs, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll tell a client that tax doesn't drive the bus. And then we'll also say the tax tail doesn't wag the dog. And so you have to think about these things holistically. And so the tax is certainly a huge part of this. But if you think about the example, if I sell my company for $5 million and gee, I didn't meet the five years. So, you know, man, I really want to do this 1045. And I'm put this entire $5 million into another QSB. Well, that's great from a tax standpoint because I've deferred gain, but I need to be thinking about my broader financial plan, my risk, my diversification, life goals. And that's where folks like you are an intricate, really important part of the conversation because you may be doing something that uh, is going to save you some tax dollars, but you may be hurting yourself in the overall financial planning life cycle stage of things. So again, it's just, again, the theme, but you have to have a team of advisors that are considering all of the different um, options and ramifications of any strategy that you implement. 
Yeah. Yeah. In in addition to the uh the the value it can create, just think in terms of even just the value of taking off of your mind the concern that you might be missing something. <laughs> Cause that's gotcha. also getting in the way of your ability to do what you need to do in your business. Absolutely. Exactly. And I think that was such a big motivator for doing this podcast to to right. just give give, you know, give founders the, you know, just a little bit of education and know what you should be thinking about and take as much as you can uh, uh, off your mind, at least the, the anxiety of feeling like you might be missing out on opportunities um, that you don't even know about necessarily. I think it's interesting that we've been talking about QSBS for several minutes now. And as Mark talked about, there are a handful of extremely compelling opportunities. We haven't actually talked about what the benefit of QSBS or what you get from it. So uh, <laughs> I don't know why that's the case, other than it makes <laughs> it makes me remember that that uh, advisors uh, tend to assume that people know yeah. you know things, we, and we just had a, a geek mistake out session. Made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now that our geek out session is over, what is the benefit of QSBS? Why is it such a big yeah. deal? And why did we spend the last fifteen minutes talking about it? Yeah, the problem with having a CPA in the podcast, you're going to geek out. It's just unavoidable. <laughs> uh, so when we think about the benefit of of QSBS, it's it's initially compelling and with some some planning it could become very compelling uh, with different options so initially when we think about um, the tax and the capital gain you have two potential benefits uh, you have up to 10 million dollars per taxpayer exemption from federal tax in terms of capital gain so it's it's 10 million dollars or this second option is is really something I've, I've rarely seen but it's, it's the greater of $10 million or 10 times your basis in your stock. Basis is a tax term, and it really just means what I paid for the stock. So in, in most cases, when we're thinking about founders, we've got early issuance C corporation stock that they've paid very little for, pennies on the dollar. And so basis is really a nominal number, and it's that $10 million limitation that we're really working with. But if you happen to have C-corporation stock, and again, there's planning opportunities with this, where you've paid a, a, a substantial amount of money in exchange for, uh, for that stock, then you can get into that 10 times basis and have a higher exemption amount out there. So, But in general, we're dealing with the $10 million. So if you think about a $10 million exemption from capital gains, and you think about a 24% long-term max federal income tax rate. It's really 23.8, but we use 24 for short. That's roughly $2.4 million in federal tax savings. And who wouldn't be happy with that? That's a significant benefit. But we as advisors are always looking for ways to increase that exemption or figure out ways to bring in additional $10 million exemptions. And that's a strategy that's commonly referred to as stacking. So what, we, what do we mean by stacking? Well, we think about the $10 million exemption. We're excited about it. $2.4 million in tax savings. Wonderful. What if I have a transaction that's a large transaction? So let's think about a, a $50 million exit. So you're going to sell your company for $50 million and you have QSBS. You have the five-year holding period, all of the other things that we've mentioned. You qualify. So we think about the $10 million exemption. Well, that's great. You're saving 2.4 million. You're still paying tax on 40 million dollars long-term capital gain. So it's still a substantial tax bill. And so what we think about there is how do we create additional taxpayers with their own 10 million dollar exemption in this transaction 
How do we do that? We do that by way of gifting a portion of your qualified small business stock to say, for the benefit of children, family members, could be friends, it could be anybody. You do that gift via trust. So we establish a trust with say, the child as the beneficiary. You gift the QSBS to that trust. That trust is now its own taxpayer for QSBS purposes, has its own $10 million limitation. That's where the stacking word comes in because instead of sure. 10 million, now I have 20 million. And so you, you sell the company, that trust receives its share of the proceeds and that $10 million is exempt from federal tax. Your child is the beneficiary of the trust. And so that's, that can be a powerful strategy to create multiple exemptions and create a lot of a, essentially exempting a lot of a, a sale transaction from federal long-term capital gain. Again, to continue the theme, you need to think about this holistically because that's an exciting tax outcome for sure, because we're saving a lot of federal tax dollars. But what we're also doing is we're eliminating a lot of liquidity and a lot of flexibility that you as the taxpayer have, because that money is a gift. It's now in a trust for the benefit of your child. You cannot use that money to start another business, to buy a home, to invest or to spend whatever it is that you might want to do. And so again, we have to think about the trade-offs on all of these strategies to make sure totally. they make sense for you in a broader financial picture. Totally. And we, um, just for the listeners, we go more into QSBS stacking in the exit planning uh, toolkit episode with our guest, Kara Koss, who's an estate planning attorney. And the reason we spend so much time on this is because we, we're talking about potentially saving tens of millions of dollars in capital gains tax. Before we move off of QSBS, I wanted to point out two additional things. Number one, uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're exempt from $10 million when it comes to state capital gains taxes. For example, I know California does not recognize QSBS, so you'd still be on the hook for uh, capital gains taxes there. I don't know um, Lewis, I'm sure there's a list of other states that don't recognize it as well. Um, but the the other point, or yeah, the, just the other data point that I wanted to make sure listeners get to hear is set aside QSBS stacking for a moment, and let's just get back to um, you get the first ten million dollar capital gains exemption on the federal level, or ten times your basis. Am I correct that even in that case, it's ten times your basis? Let's say ten times your basis was. $60 million, the the um, the cap limit for the exemption, no matter what, again, aside from stacking, is $50 million, correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure that listeners know that too. But, yeah. but you know, none, $50 million times, uh, uh, or I guess 2.4 million, million times 10 is a, it's a pretty significant tax saving. So again, the importance of, of planning early. Um, I think I want to hit on one more topic before we end this episode. And then I have a proposition for you, Lewis, which I'll get to in a minute. But <laughs> I want to talk about one of the questions that I've gotten so many times over the last um, over the last ten years from founders and C-suite entrepreneurs is: Should I move to a state where I can save and not not pay any income taxes? Should I move to Vegas? Should I move to Florida um, or Texas? And um, 
of course, like you keep saying, everything has to be taken into consideration from a, a bird's eye view, not just uh, not not just tax being the only issue to consider. But I want to talk about, you know, should when does it make sense for someone to actually make that move, or when can it potentially make sense? And also, how do they do it? Because I've come across too many people that think they're gonna sell their business and three months beforehand they're gonna go rent a property in a or, or even buy a house in a state. That um, you know, an income tax-free state, and they're going to get away with you know without paying capital gains taxes in their state. And so, I just want to get clear for a minute on all the implications of moving, how to do it the right way, what is going to get called out if it's not done the right way, and um, both income tax savings and capital gains standpoint. If you're selling a business, if you can speak on that for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. There's an obvious motivation in a high income tax state like California, where our top rate can get as high as thirteen point three percent. So that's a significant state tax burden that uh, clients are obviously motivated to, to avoid if possible. So when we think about um, the possibility of changing residency uh, in advance of a sale transaction, I think you certainly hit on one point, which is as much time as we can have between the change in domicile and the transaction, the better. You don't want to move out on a Tuesday and sell on a Wednesday. That's not going to work for you. Um so, so that's you know clearly a motivation. Um, we have to think about first the type of sale transaction that you're going to be uh, entering into. For us to have any value from a state residency standpoint, it has to be a stock sale rather than an asset sale. So don't want to go too far into the weeds on this, but a lot of transactions, the buyer is motivated to acquire assets from a company rather than stock for various tax and legal reasons as opposed to buying stock. The issue with an asset transaction is that gain is sourced to the domicile where those assets are. So if you have a California-based business and you're selling assets, that's going to be California income because that's where the gain is. Now, I have a different set of rules if I'm selling stock. Stock is an intangible asset. Intangible asset, the gain on the sale, is sourced to the residency or the domicile of the recipient. So that's where we can look to the state residency issues. So when we think about state residency for tax purposes, we're really thinking about two concepts. They're separate, but they're also interrelated in some ways. The first concept is really the easier of the two. It's residency. Residency is really a time-based function. It's based on where I spend my time. And this is where we get a lot of misunderstanding from clients. We'll get a call from a client who wants to spend 184 days in another state. And they think, well, if I've done that, I've met the residency requirements. I'm not a resident of California for that year. So the example I use with clients is, you know, if we were having this conversation, say in March, we could end the podcast. I could go to LAX and deal with the horrors of that airport, uh, which we've all been through. Um, And I could get on a plane and I can fly to Miami and I can Airbnb in Miami for the rest of the year. And I might think that I'm a Florida resident for 2023 because I spent, say, three months in California and I spent nine months in Florida. What the Franchise Tax Board, which is California's tax agency, is going to tell you is that, congratulations, you had a nice extended vacation in Florida, but you're still a California resident. And you might say, well, why is that? And that gets to the second area when we think about state tax residency, which is the the harder area to to meet the requirements and to satisfy. And that's this word domicile. Domicile 
is not necessarily time-based. It's it's a essentially an indication of where your long-term intent to reside is. So it's not just based on time spent. It's essentially what some people would call a ledger test. And so it's looking at closest connection. Where is that? So what do we think about when we think about domicile? Well, we think about a range of issues, driver's license, voter registration, social contacts, business contacts, uh, all of these different things, where you spend your time, where your estate, where your will and trust is domiciled, where your professionals are based, family, all of these things. Um, in practice, in practice, the most important aspects of domicile that courts will look at and the franchise tax board will look at. They'll look at your homes and they'll look at your physical presence. It's those mm -hmm. two areas. Okay. So let's think about what that means. And, and there's we often look to court cases um, that sort of lay out how both the courts and the franchise tax board look at this. To establish domicile, I'm establishing a permanent intent to reside in a state. So we'll look at a, a court case that was about three years ago. Taxpayer moved from Montecito, California to Nevada. This taxpayer satisfied, they did a lot of things right. They didn't spend a lot of time in California post-move. They did all the voter registration, the driver's license, all of these indications that they were going to have a permanent move to Nevada. But they got one thing wrong. That's why they lost the case. So they had about a 5,500 square foot home in Montecito. And that's where they had lived for many years. Moved to Nevada and they leased an 800 square foot studio apartment in Henderson. And equally as importantly, and this is something to, to think about with all of these cases, residency determinations can turn on the smallest of details, on the smallest of, of facts in terms of discrepancies. This taxpayer did not sell or attempt to sell their home in Montecito. They did not move any of the evidence of permanence, as the court called it, to their studio apartment in Nevada. They kept all of their legal documents, all of their tax returns, all of their family heirlooms, all of these things that we would associate with like a permanent residence. They kept those in the California house. The Nevada residents, the studio apartments, sparsely furnished evidence of temporary intent. Not This permanent. was laid out in the court documents. Like this is laid out in the court yeah. documents. That That's exactly right. And so they're looking um, closely. They look closely. And so just to return to a, a theme that maybe turned into a dead horse by the end of this podcast, but you have to have a team of advisors around you that are qualified and can help you think through these issues. So when we think about what you guys do or what we do, um, we're certainly part of these conversations. CPA is a big part of this conversation, but residency is ultimately a legal argument that you are going to be making to the franchise tax board and ultimately to a court. So when I think about legal arguments, I think about lawyers. So you have to have someone with that expertise as part of your team to think through these issues, to build the case, to build the ledger in your favor. So I, I use that, that case as an example to our clients that that's where these things, these cases turn. 
And so that taxpayer lost because the judge said, look, you have an 800 square foot sparsely populated studio apartment here. You haven't made any effort to buy a home in Nevada. You've kept this large, wonderful home in Montecito where you have all of your permanent documents. So they lost the case and they were determined to be California residents for that purpose. So there's there's a, a number of cases. There's a, another case, the, the Bracamani case, which is a, a fairly recently decided court decision where, again, the taxpayer ran into an issue uh, with not having um, the right set of facts pointing to a long-term intent to reside in another state. They had an interim home. Again, they had an established permanence in that state by transferring documents, all of the things that you want to do to say, I'm living in this state permanently going forward. So the advice we give to clients, which I'll admit is not necessarily practical, is if you want to establish residency in another state, you got to cut your ties to California. Yeah. So we'll we'll tell them never come back to California, sell your California property, buy a nice home, a comparable home in the state you're residing in, and just build the ledger in your favor. So that's that's what these cases turn on uh, again, the smallest of details that can trip you up. So uh, I would recommend maybe we can put it in the notes or we can certainly send something out. But the the break of money case in particular, the transcript in that case is required reading for anybody that's that's considering doing a, a residency change for tax purposes. With all that said, if you meet if you meet the domicile requirements, if you do everything right and then you sell your stock while you're domiciled in that state, then you can potentially save yourself a lot of tax dollars by not being in California. Well, fun fact, all of the things that you said you have to do to a T, yours truly has done all of them. I'm a resident of Florida. <laughs> <As of>, uh, <laughs> so I'm officially renaming this episode or adding on to the name and calling it uh and calling it part one with Lewis Hamill because I gotta I gotta tell you, and this was my proposition I mentioned earlier. I really want to talk about the various strategies there are to either defer or potentially completely eliminate uh, capital gains tax and and income tax. And um, I think we should cover that in a part two, because I think there's a lot of meat on that bone and it's going to take a while to cover it. And if you're cool with it, Lewis, we'd love to have you back for part two of the Exit Planning Toolkit podcast. And, uh, and just to give the cliffhanger for the audience, we are going to be talking about, I'm just going to talk about, I'm just going to mention these strategies to get you to come back and listen to the next episode. Um, And they are, we're going to be talking about using a donor advised fund, potentially a private foundation, qualified opportunity zones. A lot of people have been talking about opportunity zones since, uh, since they were established, deferred sales trust and charitable remainder trust, all really, really powerful strategies. Um, and again, we'll cover them in a next episode and uh, I'll stop there and just say, thank you so much for yeah. coming on. This was ultra valuable. Lewis. Yeah. I think that I can't wait for the next uh, episodes. We have a lot to live up to. There was a mention on this one of dead horses, of dogs, of buses, of the horrors of LAX. And <laughs> you actually assigned reading to us to read a court transcript. So I mean that's just that's episode one. Uh, we've got a lot more, a lot more to come. Um, I'll, 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 yeah, all, all kidding aside, um, yeah. the 
And this has been the case. We're fortunate here with with all of our guests for the exit planning toolkit episodes. You are not only an expert at your craft, um, but you're also a very kind, generous, and thoughtful person. And we feel lucky to have you in our orbit. So uh, thank you for your your willingness to spend the time and and really your ongoing service for the the greater good of all the people's uh, lives that you touch. Well, thanks, Mark. After those words, I have a new favorite client. So uh, I appreciate well, that. That was my intention. <laughs> yeah. That was my intention. And I think yeah. we should probably end it there. Thanks, guys. Appreciate <laughs> it. All right. Lewis. Awesome, Lewis. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Five Oceans podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.5oceansadvisors.com or give us a call at 310-525-5155. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Five Oceans Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your individual planning. None of the information provided is intended as investment, tax, accounting, or legal advice, as an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell, or as an endorsement of any company, security, fund, or other securities or non-securities offering. This information should not be relied upon for transacting securities or other investments. Under no circumstances shall Five Oceans Advisors be liable for any direct, indirect, special, or consequential damages that result from the use of or the inability to use the materials provided. In no event shall Five Oceans Advisors have any liability to you for damages, losses, and causes of action for accessing this commentary. Past performance is not indicative of future results.